Hi everyone, my name is Karen, and welcome to the next page, the podcast of the UN Geneva Library and Archives. Well, hello everyone, and thank you so much for joining us for another episode of the next page. And to those who are tuning in for the first time, welcome. We are so happy you are here. Today, I am so excited to present to you this very special episode where our director, Francesco Pisano, speaks with Dr. David Nabarro, who is one of six special envoys of the Director General of the World Health Organization, or the WHO, for the current COVID-19 crisis, and he is also the director of 4SD. Now, what does 4SD mean? It actually stands for Skills, Systems, and Synergies for Sustainable Development, but I'll leave the more in-depth explanation to Dr. David Nabarro himself. Now, it goes without saying that COVID has had and continues to have a very large impact on all of our lives. Our world, our cultures, and our habits are all changing. In this episode, Dr. Nabarro speaks on the importance of viewing the current crisis as a major systems challenge, emphasizing the vital roles of citizens, our public health systems, and society at large. Dr. Nabarro also shares his thoughts on the ways in which he thinks COVID will affect Agenda 2030, at the heart of which are 17 Sustainable Development Goals. Agenda 2030 serves as a plan of action for people, planet, and prosperity, and acts as a blueprint to achieve a better and more sustainable future for all. With invaluable insight from his decades of service as a medical doctor, special envoy, and strategic director at 4SD, Dr. David Nabarro takes us through the present pandemic, but more importantly, points us to the future and the collective cooperation that we must all champion. As always, we've got some more resources in the podcast notes down below, so please check them out. And we hope that you are inspired and challenged as much as we are. Let's go. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the next page of the podcast of Library Archives at UN Geneva. I have the honor today of having an exceptional, exceptional guest. This is Dr. David Nabarro, who is a special envoy of the Director General of WHO for the COVID crisis, and he's also the director of 4SD. He will introduce himself in a second, but let me tell you, our conversation today is going to be about are we getting on with Agenda 2030 with or without the COVID virus crisis? Now, David is uh, wizard of crisis pandemics has been virtually involved in all the global crises that have affected our planet in the last 20 years or even more. So he'll talk a lot about his experience there, but he will also talk about his experience in spearheading and leading the conversation on Agenda 2030 immediately after its adoption in 2016 and the years uh, following that. So first of all, thank you so thank much, you. Dr. Dabaro, yeah. for being yeah. with us. And tell our audience a little bit about you. I know you're super famous in UN circles and international community. Some of our listeners may not know your impressive city. So thank just- you very much indeed. Hello, everybody. Uh, I'm David. I'm a medical doctor. And I qualified in the middle 1970s. Fairly early in my medical career, I worked in India, in Africa, Latin America, really trying to understand the differences in people's health and also the ways in which health systems work around the world. 
I was fascinated by what we call public health, which is thinking about groups of people and whether or not they are able to be healthier, and then trying to understand which people seem to find it hardest to be healthy, to live long, and to have full functionality. And gradually over time, I found myself understanding that the underpinning of good health is a good standard of living. Water, sanitation, the right food for nutrition, shelter, a decent job, and then also peace, because it's so hard to be healthy when you're at war. And so I gradually shifted during my 30s and 40s and then 50s from being a medical doctor to being somebody who was interested in how all the different facets of life have an impact on people's health. 17 years ago, I was working in the United Nations family. I started at the World Health Organization on malaria and on emergencies. And then I moved to New York to work on pandemics. And I got involved in food and nutrition, in sustainable development and in climate action, all the time with different secretaries general of the UN, all the time trying to make sure that this amazing institution that's here for all the world's people does the best it can for the good of everybody. And so I'm here today with Francesca, looking forward to sharing more with you. Fantastic. Thank you so much for this self-introduction. Uh, I must say that uh, if any of you listeners go on the web and check out David Navarro's um, bio, you will be impressed. Uh, he summarized it quite a lot. There is much more to be said, but let me start going right into the core of the conversation today. You've been involved, if I remember well, in the human influence or the bird flu yes. right from the beginning in 2005. Then again, uh, you came back for uh, another global crisis, the Ebola crisis, yes. and we were then in the summer of 14. And then you were also asked by the Secretary General to be the head of the UN response to the cholera in Haiti yeah. that were in summer 2016. Um, I wonder if you have ever time to rest and take holiday. And then you were asked to be the special advisor to the UN Secretary General on the 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development and the climate change. Yeah. And that brings us to January 2016, yeah. that job you've been doing until uh, mid-17 or end of 17, if yeah. I remember correctly. And here we are now yeah. with COVID. So so the first thing that I would like you to explain to our listeners is the depth of the crisis provoked by COVID-19 at systemic level on our planet today. Thank you, Francesca. You know, we've always known that new viruses can appear. From time to time, out of the blue, they suddenly come into the human race and they cause disease. There's an awful lot of that happening. Mostly, you don't really notice it. A few people get ill. No special investigations are done. They tend to die, and then the virus dies away. But sometimes it sticks, and it causes a big problem. It's what we call a zoonotic disease. It comes from the animal kingdom into the human race, jumping across. 75% of all the new viruses that are going to affect humanity seem to be coming from animals. And so we've always said that we need to be defended against them. 
And it's not easy because you never know where they're going to arrive. So in order to get ready for it, the World Health Organization has set up and maintained a program to just scan the world to see when these new viruses come along. And, and the way in which that works is, of course, it, it relies on countries sending in information saying they've got a problem, like all the rest of the UN, the WHO works in response to national governments. Anyway, so in January, this new virus appeared. It's a little bit like one that we had in 2003 that caused a disease called SARS. The kind of virus you don't like to encounter because it's dangerous and it has lots of unexpected twists and turns. This one certainly has taken root in our world. And quite unlike any other disease that I've encountered in my 45 years in public health. And it's not only caused disease. It's also caused massive ethical challenges for governments everywhere. And it's caused huge impacts on people's lives that are associated with efforts made to contain the disease. The ethical challenges come because the disease tends to kill older people and people with other illnesses. And there's therefore a question for all governments. How much emphasis do you put on controlling this virus when it doesn't endanger everybody? And there are some who have said, I think understandably, that perhaps we should just let the virus do its business. Others say, no, you've got to fight it and you've got to try to get on top of it. The other thing is that to actually contain it requires three things. First is people have got to change the way in which they behave. Physical distance, wearing masks, lots of hygiene, keeping away when you're sick. Things that sound small when you say them individually, but they have huge impact on people's lives, particularly poorer people who find it harder to maintain the distance because of the situations under which they work. The second thing is you've got to have public health working at the local level. And by that, I mean the ability to see who's ill and who's well in a community and to have that community strong and working together. And the third thing is society. Everybody working together, business, civil society, universities, local authorities, governments, to basically get ahead of this virus and to make sure that it can't undermine our way of life, destroy our economic systems. Getting those three things in place, the people, the public health systems, and then the whole of government helping people to get on top of this virus is a massive systems challenge. Some countries are doing it really well, particularly the countries that experienced SARS in 2003. Other countries are struggling, and they're struggling partly because they find it hard to get their people to come together for a common cause. There's a sort of sense that you really want to have dissent, and you almost politicize the way of dealing with this virus. Some countries are having difficulty because they just can't put the public health basics in place. I think most realize they've got to do that. And some countries are having difficulty because they feel that somehow the virus will go away on its own and they don't need to organize society to manage it. But I believe 
over the last few weeks and months, and I'm, I mean, I'm talking here in August 2020, I think the world's come to understand we've got to treat this as a major systems challenge, and then we can get on top of it. Now we are in August 2020, as you said, right in the middle of this crisis. And to bring these three factors, three conditions together, yeah. as you said, it's apparently uh, difficult. Now, what is your impression, your sense, being really in the job you are now, a special envoy, are we on the right path to recover from this crisis in a lapse of time that is acceptable to our systems? Gosh, that's a tough question. I think if we were in 2015, around the time we were dealing with Ebola in West Africa, and we were trying to deal with this COVID, with the mood that there was between nations at that time, I think our job would be easier. We had governments really coming together and saying we want to be part of the effort to support Liberia, Sierra Leone, Guinea, and the countries around them that were suffering so much with Ebola. And the rest of the world said, we're with you. And it was the most extraordinary outpouring of solidarity. And I suppose I've come to expect that of our world. I've come to expect that, particularly of the wealthy nations. And so it's been a bit of a challenge here in 2020 to find that somehow that automatic solidarity is just not there. Indeed, the United Nations system, which is after all our beacon of global solidarity, has been quite severely punished during this response to COVID. We've had one major nation withdraw from the World Health Organization right in the middle of the response. That's pretty serious. So I do think that as a world, we not at the moment working on this together. And I think we owe it to the 7.6 or so billion people in our world to work on this challenge together. Because as you implied in the question, the economic and societal consequences of this COVID are just huge. And we don't know how big they're going to be because the problem is just getting more and more serious all the time. And I think this is a perfect cue to uh, go to a new chapter in this conversation with you, David, and talk about multilateralism and yeah. the crisis. As you know, our podcast is dedicated to advancing the conversation on multilateralism. And so I'm, I'm wondering, you know, what is the view from our observation deck in terms of the relationship between multilateralism and the crisis? And you said it, it's very different. It's gotten worse mm -hmm. since 2015. So I'd be interested in your views about what are we unlearning during this process? Why we're not learning collectively during this crisis? You know, if you want to deal with a common threat, then the obvious thing to do is to group together, pool your experience and address it using the very best elements you've got. And frankly, this has been happening on things like the development of therapies or vaccines, we've seen extraordinary and unprecedented cooperation. But then you would have thought that there would also be cooperation on how to reopen schools, 
how to improve the situation in factories where we've got high COVID transmission or what steps to put in place to get safety at work or whether we should have a global policy on face protection and masks. And there's something so extraordinary happening. It's as though there's an ongoing competition within countries, between countries, between political groups, between local authorities. We're doing better than them. Well, it's not like that. This is one enemy for all of humanity. And it's an enemy that doesn't get bored. It's an enemy that doesn't vote. It's an enemy that is cunning and dangerous. And so I'm, what I'm trying to do is to remind whatever leader I can connect with that actually government is for the people. And if you are a national leader, you're not just governing for your own people, but you're governing for all people. Because our world has a system of global governance that is entirely composed of national leaders. There's nobody else. Our Secretary General of the UN, he's there, elected by national leaders. But his authority comes from these national leaders. And these national leaders are the new generation of the people some decades ago who agreed the United Nations Charter. And the three words that start the United Nations Charter are we the peoples. It's not we the governments, it's we the peoples. So the way the world works is through a governance system made up of the heads of government from 193 or so nations. But they're governing not just for their own people, they're governing for all people. I think the public get this more and more. The challenge is to continue to encourage national leaders to find it in themselves, to work for the public good, the good of all, and not just a particular set of constituents. Now, in reading some of the analysts on the interaction between the crisis affects the effects of this crisis and multilateralism. Yeah. I have encountered many, many times the reflection that this crisis is showing, if anything, that the uh, multilateral system needs revamping. Now, I think it, need, it has been needed revamping for a while, but this crisis reveals that need maybe more dramatically, if, if you wish, more urgently. I don't know if you agree on that, but um, there is this dichotomy between imagining, you know, what the future multilaterals will be and imagining a whole new, brand new multilateralism for the future. The UN is 75 this year, and at 75 is asking the world, what is the world you imagine in 1945, yes. in 2045, which would be a century after the creation yes. of the UN. And the UN is still looking at things with this multilateral impetus, these values that we all know and that you mentioned, with we the peoples right on the top of the charter, and it's mm -hmm. still very much so. But it's also part of a system that may have run its course. Mm -hmm. What is your view in terms of uh, multilateralism today and tomorrow? Thanks very much. I suppose I'd like to start by saying 
the idea of multilateralism, of the leaders of different nations coming together to work for the future of our world, is in no way outdated. And I find in my discussions with young people all over the world an absolute belief that this has to be at the heart of the legacy that our current generation leaves for the people who are still to come. Now, the system through which we work, this United Nations, is structured in a particular way. And I'm sure that, as you suggest, it could be changed. The amounts of money people pay to be members of the United Nations, the various formats within which they work together in their committees and so on, all these can alter. But we're not going to, I think, ever get away from the core principle of governing on behalf of everybody. And I would add governing on behalf of generations to come. So let us take a different tack and let us say, okay, so there's going to have to be changes to the multilateral system. But perhaps there also has to be change to the practice of leadership. If you are a leader, who exactly are you leading for? How are you leading? And what is your framework for accountability for your leadership? I think you know, Francesco, that for a long time, I've concluded that many of the complex issues that we're facing in our world need a style of leadership that takes account of the multiple factors leading to the situations in which people find themselves, and that takes account also of the multiple perspectives that different individuals and groups have on the situations that exist in our world today. And that we're never going to resolve these challenges by having one group seek to dominate over the others through intellectual power, financial power, or even muscle power. Instead, the kind of leadership we need for the future has to be crafted around space being there for all those with an interest to be involved in decision-taking. And some people say, oh, well, it'll make things complicated, and I'm sure that it will take us time to get used to it. But if we acknowledge that we're not going to solve current problems simply by one group trying to wrestle the other group to the ground through whatever means they choose, then we can at least, in our revamp of multilateralism, ask what are the characteristics of modern leadership that matters and how do we encourage those characteristics to come to the fore? And just a quick point, they won't necessarily come out of the current class of political leaders we have today. I find some of the most exciting new leaders are young people, are people who've not held positions of authority and who've got refreshing and often rather disturbing analyses of the current situation and push us to think differently. One of the strongest call to leaders and to leadership that I have encountered in my career in the, uh, in the international uh, realm is Agenda 2030. Yeah. And you've been one of the most powerful and clear 
advocates for Agenda 2030, but officially in, in the mission that the Secretary General uh, gave you in 2016, but also as, as, a, as a mentor, as a person, as a leader yourself in all, also your, your, your academic and personal and private sector ventures. So I would like to call on you, Dr. Navarro, the 2030 Agenda expert. Yes. And link it also to the crisis, because one question I had for you is, overall, do you think that when we look back at 2020 and 2020 going towards 2030 from the future, the, the decade of implementation, if yeah. you wish, will we be saying that after all, COVID put us on the right track yeah. or disrupted the uh, process to achieve Agenda 2030? I don't think we were particularly on the right track before the crisis. Now, this crisis will end up putting us on the right track or oh. disrupting us even further, in your opinion? Just to, just to give myself away right at the beginning, I'm a stubborn optimist, and I believe humanity has incredible capacities to work together to solve beastly problems. I don't think we were put on Earth to fail. I think we were put on Earth to succeed. So straight away, I am absolutely certain that humanity will come through this crisis and other crises successfully. The question is, how quickly will we organise ourselves to get it right and how much damage will occur because we're slow or disorganised? I was in Rio de Janeiro with a UN Secretary-General in 2012. The world was examining how we'd done on a master plan to benefit the poorer people in poor nations called the Millennium Development Agenda. The feeling was good marks, but just having a plan for the world that focuses on one group of people in one group of countries didn't go down too well with some nations. And there was a really strong outpouring of requests right through the United Nations in that 2012 meeting if you're planning for a future agenda for development, make sure that it's truly universal and applies to everyone. That started a three-year process of extraordinary negotiation, coupled with work to go in detail into certain areas and say what needs to be sorted out in health, in food, in environment, and so on, plus a big polling of more than 8 million people to ask them about what world do they want. And out of this came an extraordinary agreement, an agreement on a plan for the future of the world and her people, an agreement that was supported by all world leaders, a complex agreement with 17 goals and 169 targets, but an interconnected agreement that recognises that the different facets of people's lives are all joined up and that you can't usefully separate out how people live and people's health and people's water and people's education. They do need to be brought together. An agreement that put people at the centre and said, let's not leave people behind. An agreement that said, if we're going to resolve these problems, we need to be able to do it through partnering because none of us can do it alone. I love it. I'll tell you why because it is the plan for the future. There is no other plan. There is only one plan, and it's the 2030 Agenda, 
released in September 2015. Because there's no other planet, it's vital that we have a plan. And because our planet is fragile, that planet needs to be good. And that, that plan is a good plan. And COVID comes along, causes suffering in an extraordinary way. Just so many people dying and, and really horrible deaths. This is a, a, just a, a, an awful disease, speaking as a doctor. And what's COVID done? It's shown us one thing about our world, and that is that it is incredibly unequal. COVID hurts poor people the worst. Often these poor people belong to a different ethnicity from the dominant ethnicity in a country. So in some countries we've seen that black people are more likely to suffer than Caucasian people. But that's because of poverty. That's because of deprivation. That's because they have less good access to health care. That's because they suffer the most when some kind of activity is done to reduce spread of the disease. Sometimes people call them lockdowns. Poor people really suffer in those things. So COVID has revealed that we've got to sort out inequity. The 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development is all about reducing inequities. And what COVID shows us, therefore, is the 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development is the right pathway for the future of our world. We want to avoid compartmentalization, fragmentation, st separation, stigmatization, and instead work for a world with equality of opportunity and with people having the chance to ensure that their children are able to have a good education, good health and good nutrition. We've got to apply the 2030 Agenda in the face of COVID and in the face of other threats like climate or like the destruction of nature. Am I seeing more attention given to the Sustainable Development Agenda? Perhaps, perhaps not. But what I am seeing is more and more people understand that unless we tackle inequity, unless we tackle destruction of our planet, life in the future for generations to come is potentially much worse than it is for us now. This is not a doom statement. This is a statement based on the science. So for me, COVID has just given added impetus to the work I'm doing to bring that 2030 agenda for, to, for sustainable development to life everywhere. When you travel around the world in your current mission yeah. as the special envoy on the COVID crisis, do you rather see that... What you are saying now, it's also reflected in the way national leadership behave vis-a-vis -vis the commitment they've taken for Agenda 2030, or do you have the sense that there is a massive, albeit temporary, distraction from that piece of work in order to cope with the crisis? Because many analysts are saying this is a massive distraction of resources, attention, focus, and energy. That, that decreases our systemic ability to deal with the global climate change crisis and also the Agenda 2030 as a complex of inter-facing inter, uh, goals. Thanks. At, at the beginning, I think that most countries focused almost entirely on the disease, getting the numbers of cases down, 
dealing with all those who are turning up at hospitals, coping with real shortages of just about everything. And so it became disease dominant. Now we are eight months in and more and more governments, as they study who's at risk, as they study where they are when they are at risk, and as they think about their responses, are adopting a different tone. And they're seeing that poorer people have much less opportunity to deal with this virus. And they're realizing that unless they tackle the inequities in housing or the real challenges faced for the employment of poor people or the problems of, of missing social protection around the world, leaders are saying, we've got to deal with that. Otherwise, this disease is just going to stay put and go on threatening us. And so, yes, there is a shift. It's not enough uh, and it's not everywhere. But there is now a recognition this is not just a disease problem. This is a societal problem. Uh, this is an economic problem. And this is therefore a political problem. Recently, I've uh, been following you on social media and on the web, various resources, articles you've read, uh, webcasts that you have sp uh, spoken on, and you talk a lot recently about living systems. Yes. Would you like to tell us a little bit more about that? So, Francesco, I've mentioned to you that most of the issues that we're dealing with these days tend to be an interaction between different groups of actors that come together and affect the well-being of everybody. But they come together in lots of different locations and in lots of different patterns. Basically, life is due to this interplay. It's not a single issue that's causing challenges. Instead, it's the way in which different issues come together. A poor person living in a village in India may have challenges on getting food, access to education, access to water and sanitation, and employment. And they are all playing into each other, and you've got to deal with them together. We call that working with systems. Now, the more you get into working with systems, the more you realize that it does call for particular patterns of leadership. The central requirement, as far as I'm concerned, is to recognize that the systems with which we're working are almost all run through people. They're not machines. They're human systems. So if you are trying to look after a hospital, you're working with people, people in different departments, people belonging to different professions, people who perhaps have different employers. But you need to get ways to enable people to work together efficiently, looking after people as their primary priority, and to do it as one. And that's called working with living systems, because it's systems dominated by people. I've spent all my time in the UN working to bring people together. Since I left the UN in 2017, I've been working to help people identify the characteristics of living systems and become really skilled at working in them. And it's a different way of working from the traditional leadership with one person at the top, issuing instructions, writing up procedures, really penalizing people if they don't do things properly. Whilst that style of leadership works for certain things, 
Living Systems Leadership, which embraces multiple perspectives, focuses on the issue at hand rather than competition between the actors, and gives credit to everybody for what's achieved, has huge potential to solve the major complex challenges with which we're working today. I've seen it happen in so many areas, but I'd particularly like to pick out health because most of the good health work that's going on in our world today recognises that whether or not we're sick or well depends on things that happen outside the health system. And that's why you need a living systems approach to health. Now, you've been leading this entity and organization called 4SD. I imagine that this is where you work in touch with leadership and you try to help in this, in this, in this global venture of, of uh, you know, facing global challenges. And it's also a new set of problems. When I joined the UN, and certainly when you joined the UN, challenges were subdivided in, uh, in problems that were still possible to be approached nationally. And today, mm-hmm. the number of global issues outnumbers the number of uh, national problems that one or a few or a coalition of countries can have any chance of solving. So these these global challenges are really at the heart of what what uh, we're trying to solve with Agenda 2030, and they could be the the, the road maps of of Agenda on the way to Agenda yeah. 2030 um, uh, achievements. Now, can you tell us a little bit about 4SD yeah. and what you do there, and maybe you know. Uh, feel free to tell leaders out there what's in it for them Mm. in your organization. Thank you, Francesco. Actually, you know, we're sitting here in the United Nations and I I started to get really involved in thinking about leading and leadership when I was in the UN, working alongside the Secretary General and others. And they taught me so much. Perhaps the most important thing they taught me was that when you want a group of people to try to tackle an issue. You've got to try to persuade them to leave their logos and their institutional affiliations at the door and sit around the table and focus on the problem rather than on themselves. 4SD stands for Skills, Systems and Synergies for Sustainable Development. And that was because as I was doing this work, I learned that synergy, when you are trying to deal with systems issues is a really desirable attribute of a response. If you can find ways to deal with three or four challenges at the same time, when you're working with a group of households, a community, a ward, uh, uh, a panchayat, a town, that gives you real opportunities for progress. Forest D teaches people living systems leadership. It teaches them to work in the context of the sustainable development agenda, to be good at systems thinkers and systems actors. It also teaches them to be comfortable working with their own emotions and their own instincts, as well as what's coming out of the thinking part of their head. Because we do an awful lot of emotional work when we're doing systems leadership. We build relationships. We help establish identities. We trust. We share. That's the heart of this work. And therefore, getting the emotional core right is hugely important. Within 4SD, we continue to maintain contact with leaders, young and old. We say there's a leader in everybody, whoever they are. 
We also encourage people to come together in groups. We do what we can to link up with the United Nations, with non-governmental organizations, with national governments and local authorities, with businesses, with universities, because we believe that the more we can encourage living systems leadership done well, the better it will be for the future of our world. We specialize in health, in food, in nature, and other similar things, but we basically believe that this applies for all complex issues. 4SD is very easy to access, www.4sd, that's number 4sd.info, I-N-F-O. And that's a carefully chosen suffix, by the way, because info is a really important new domain name. I see you smiling, you're the librarian, you understand, I love it. But also, we believe that systems leadership and particularly living systems leadership involves us connecting and working together in networks. That gives us strength. That gives us the opportunity to deal with really massive problems. And we never quite know where we'll get to when we're dealing with a problem in this way, but we know that we'll give it our best shot. And I have seen incredible results coming from people who've been through our programs and other similar programs in lots of different settings. But most important, they don't take credit for it. So that means that quite often the best leadership is done by people who are never credited with it. Doesn't matter as long as it happens. Well, it certainly made me curious about knowing more about 4SD. I'm sure the number of our listeners are curious too. David, as we wrap up this podcast, any final thoughts, any key concept that you want our audience to walk away with from this podcast? It's always easy to frame challenges in terms of good and bad, right and wrong. And some of our modern information processes actually help us with that. We have social media offering us one minute a new fact, next minute the fact is debunked. We have huge rows about what is truth, what is fake. And perhaps that's not surprising to me because we all have different perspectives on every situation. I encourage people to fuss less about what is truth and what is fact because that does lead one into really difficult, sometimes actually disturbing arguments where you can see right on both sides. So why are people arguing? And instead, what I encourage people to do is to have an open mind, to create space where multiple perspectives on an issue can be embraced without the need always to show somebody up, to find them in the wrong or whatever else, because it's only through working together we will get results. We don't have to compete. We don't have to put each other down. But actually, what really matters is we lift each other up and get the best out of everybody. Dr. David Navarro, thank you so much for the time you took to be with us today. And thank you for everything you're doing to save the world from this crisis. Francesco, I love working with you. Just keep it going. You're a librarian extraordinaire.